This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we're at the home of Charles Darwin to mark 160 years since the publication of his most famous work. This was actually the age when religion was emerging out of science and that split was happening in Darwin's lifetime and he, of course, was part of that process. We'll soak up the gardens, which helped inspire the father of modern biology. I mean, the whole garden was an open, living, working laboratory for him. That was the reason why he acquired the house here in Kent. He could look at the countryside and recognise the importance and the biodiversity of this site. So he used everything he had around him. And we'll find out how a young Darwin's opportunity to travel the world changed our understanding of it forever. Now this week, you join us in the county of Kent, which has been known for more than 400 years as the Garden of England. And we've traveled to a garden as well, but not just any garden. It's the garden belonging to the world famous naturalist, Charles Darwin. And it's here where I meet senior properties historian, Dr. Stephen Brindle, to learn all about the evolution of Darwin the man and his evolutionary theory. Thank you, Charles. Lovely to be here on this fine autumn day. As we walk around the gravel paths of the grounds, uh, Stephen, let's trace out Darwin's early life. Um, Mm -hmm. When and where was he born and and who were his parents? Charles Darwin was born in Shrewsbury in 1809. His father was a very wealthy doctor, Robert Waring Darwin, and his mother was Susanna Wedgwood. Now that's a famous name because Susanna's father was the famous potter Josiah Wedgwood. And his paternal grandfather was a man called Erasmus Darwin. And both Erasmus and Josiah Wedgwood were members of that famous scientific society which met in Birmingham called the Lunar Society. So they were close friends and they were part of that cultivated scientific culture. And so the families knew each other which is how Erasmus's son, Robert Waring Darwin, came to marry Wedgwood's daughter, Susanna. So the environmental conditions for him were right to move into the sciences? Yes, certainly. His grandfather, more than his father, was a famous sort of scientific thinker. And his father wanted Charles, after going to Shrewsbury School, to go to Edinburgh University to train to be a doctor himself. But he only lasted a couple of years in Edinburgh and he didn't like it at all. The anatomy theatre and the anatomical work sort of disgusted and appalled him, I think was part of it. And another part was that Darwin was already feeling himself more drawn to the natural sciences. That's really interesting in sort of Mm. genetic terms, in Darwinian terms. This is where (laughs) his life kind of mutates. It did indeed, unfortunately for us all, in the direction of Cambridge and the natural sciences. Now, the thing was, his father, who's a rather aloof, overbearing man, 
then decided that the only thing for Charles to do was to become a clergyman. Being a clergyman meant that you had a secure income for life, a nice home, social status, you had plenty of leisure time, and so a great many of the natural scientists of the age, including most of the men who taught Darwin at Cambridge, were in fact clergymen. We now think of them as being an opposition between religion and science, but this was actually the age when religion was emerging out of science, and that split was happening in Darwin's lifetime, and he, of course, was part of that process. What was the world view at the time? It was a, a rapidly changing view. At any rate, it was for educated people. Now, for the great mass of the population, they were still taught the traditional biblical account that we get in Genesis. But scientific people understood that this could no longer be true and everyone was groping their way towards the truth. That is, everyone within this actually quite small category of educated people interested in the sciences. All right, Stephen, well, let's walk past the experimental bed along this path. How did he become interested in nature and... How later did he become attracted to this property? Because obviously we're, we're surrounded by nature and there's a lot of acres. Darwin was not a particularly scholarly youth and he was, he was kind of a, a lively teenager. His father at once berated him for being interested in nothing but dogs and rat catching or something like that. <laughs> uh, by the time he got to Edinburgh University, he was becoming interested in the natural sciences, especially in botany. And when he went to Cambridge, that had developed into a serious passion. And he had tutors at Cambridge, John Stevens Henslow and Adam Sedgwick, who were mentors there. So what he was studying at Cambridge, bizarre that it might seem to us, was a mixture of conventional uh, biblical theology, which is what, of course, he had to take, and the classics, which is what he had to take his actual exams in, uh, and he graduated in Cambridge in, but I think his real passion there was in often going away for weekend trips, sometimes with Sendwick, with Henslow, in search of species, especially botanical species, that age, but also going on trips in search of places with interesting geology within the British Isles. And so it was that he'd acquired a significant reputation as a budding natural scientist and it was because of that and because of the support of these very eminent natural scientists who were themselves clergymen Henslow and Sedgwick that they really put his name forward to be the scientific officer on the voyage of the Beagle. So his name was put forward by these two tutors and he ends up on the on the Beagle on what is supposed to be I believe a two-year trip in mm-hmm. what year? In December 1831, they left England and returned in October 1836, so five and a half years away. That Um, wasn't the plan. Well, I think Captain Fitzroy had a fairly loose timetable assigned to him. The Beagle was an exploration vessel which was primarily concerned with cartography, mapping the coast and to an extent mapping the interior, in particular of South America. The Royal Navy were very interested, had every reason to, to want better marine charts and more broadly better maps of the world. So he's on this five-year journey, originally slated to be two. 
How many countries does he visit and what does he study? Well, broadly speaking, they sailed via the Cape Verde Islands, then to South America. They pushed in several places on the coast of South America and Patagonia. They sailed up the coast of Chile. They put ashore several times, spent some time inland there. And they stopped at the Galapagos Islands off the coast of Chile. Very important for his research. They crossed the Pacific via Tahiti to New Zealand and Australia, where again Darwin went ashore, spent some time ashore. Then they crossed the Indian Ocean via Mauritius, sailed round the coast of southern Africa. He went ashore in South Africa. Then they sailed back up the Atlantic. I think they they put in the coast of Brazil again, and so back north to England. But there were long periods spent ashore And Darwin's interests developed as he went. I think his primary interest when he set out seems to have been in geology. He had a copy of the first volume of Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology and he had the next volume sent out to him and he was engaging with Lyell's ideas and trying to apply them to what he saw, especially in South America, first in Patagonia and then the Andes. And he realised how the remains of fossilised species, fossilised trees, confirmed... Lyle's view and developed it and he was starting to understand how immensely old the world was and how the fossil record provided vital evidence for the changes in species in the past. When he came to the Galapagos Islands they are a remarkable group of islands which represent a much larger body of land in the prehistoric past which has sunk leaving a number of islands which in the prehistoric past were the same body but have become a number of different islands with the result that there are populations some of which would not be able to get from one island to the other which were clearly related but subtly differentiated and had evolved separately yeah, and had evolved separately and the most famous set piece example of this was the finches that lived on the Galapagos Islands and Darwin realised that they were essentially the same bird or the same species but their beaks had evolved and their heads had evolved in different shapes and he realised that they were evolved to feed on what was available to them and that was a particularly important set piece of species evolving to their environment to these micro-environments, if you like, of these quite small islands from having been the same species. And so the relationship between species and habitat was set out for him. But it would have taken someone of Darwin's patience, powers of observation and intellectual power to see all this and put it together. But of course there were many such observations, many, many such observations spanning many species for him to arrive at the theory of evolution by natural selection. But that was an important moment. And it's at this moment, as I make my own Darwinian link between finches and a spitfire overhead, that I make my way towards Darwin's home for 40 years, the place where he wrote his most famous work on the origin of species. Waiting for me is historic properties steward, Kim Durham. So we've just come in through the service yards and we're about to go past the cafe and you're going to show us the study where Darwin would have written on the origin of species. That's right, yes. There are three parts of the house visit here. Upstairs is the museum, the gardens where you've just been, and on this level, these are the display rooms where everything you see on this level was owned 
by Charles and Emma Darwin and the family have given it back to us on loan. Okay. So as we walk into the corridor here, we have the billiard room on the right, dining room on the left, and in the main hallway here we come to the study, which really is the jewel in the crown. This is where Darwin basically bought the house for this study. As we enter, just here on the right, this is the famous picture you see of the beagle at Terre du Fuego. So this is an anchor there. In Whereabouts Marisa, is that? In South America. Right. This was drawn by the ship's artist and purchased by Darwin from Conrad Martin, the artist. So It's quite small actually, isn't it? It is. It's only about yeah. 10 inches wide. Yeah. So as we come in, everything we look at here was owned by Charles and Emma Darwin. We're surrounded by books. Yes. Um, books behind us in cabinets. Yes. This was his Wikipedia of the day. These are the books, the original books, everything you see here, including the maps here on the room, all the annotations were done by Darwin. It's a good sized study, about, I don't know, 20 feet long and then maybe about 17, 18 feet wide. We've got this velvet rope in front of us so that visitors obviously can only walk along this one area. That's right. A mauve coloured carpet, sort of reddish curtains, and we've got a desk in front of us. Everything you're looking at was owned and used by Charles Darwin when he wrote The Origin in this room. And that's the desk, chair and writing board that he wrote it on. A lot of the reason it's so compact is because, having been on the Beagle for five years, he made the study exactly the same as the Beagle cabin. Everything was condensed and refined down to this area. So as we're looking at this, what sort of time frame are we looking at from disembarking the Beagle to beginning to write on the origin of species? Having arrived back, he was known within the scientific community. That was due to Henslow, the professor at Cambridge, receiving all of his papers and exhibits which were presented in London and around the country to the scientific community. And it was in July the following 1837. He was looking at his notes, making notes about the fossils he'd seen, and that's when he came up with his theory that all life had started in the sea several million years ago and looked at basically the tree of life, how it started and how it ended up with the various species. He then got married. He'd actually looked again at um, evolution and what he was thinking as quote, mutation. He came to Down in 1842 and he wrote a short 24-page manuscript around his thinking, which was kept back um, for his own research. Then he spoke to Charles Lyell around about 1856, who basically said, this should be a book. He composed the book. Who's Charles Lyell? Charles Lyell, the geologist, Principles of Geology, the book that he took with him on the Beagle and the second edition to come out. And having returned from the Beagle, he met Lyle, who became a good friend of his, and in fact is buried just up from him in Westminster Abbey. So, in a way, Lyle was his mentor and inspiration? Yeah, with geology, yes. Adam Sedgwick, Cambridge again, and Charles Lyle. And it was his interest in geology which inspired the study of what he observed yeah. on his trip? In this room, yes. He mm. pulled all the notes together, the finches in all the collection, researched it a little bit more. And then what happened was, the book was done, placed under the stairs here for a while, the manuscript, instructions to his wife should he die, there was £400, go to his publisher, John Murray in Albemarle Street, and publish. But then Alfred Russell Wallace in 1858 sent an essay here uh, in the manuscript, which was basically the same theory as Darwin's. And then they spoke to Lyle again, and a joint paper was presented at the Linnaean Society that year that really didn't go anywhere. It was only the next year, in 1859, that the 1,250 copies of The Origin were published and sold out the first day. 
So it's a long time, from 1842, from when he was first writing the manuscript, to 1859, when it was published yeah. as a proper book. Yeah. He spent so much time researching everything, evaluating things, considering things, ensuring that when he presented his theory, it had substance behind it. It was also presented in a manner which basically the layperson could read and understand as well. How many other books did he pen in this very spot? Altogether, there's about 25 books, but he also wrote several pamphlets and publications. And when we talk about books, The Voyage of the Beagle was um, into several volumes. And also, if you look, the eight years' research into um, barnacles, which he wanted to do to give himself credibility within the scientific community, two books were on fossilised barnacles and the other two books were on living barnacles. So when we talk about the books, there are several books probably 25 to 29 that you could actually say were written by Darwin, ranging from geology, biology, botany, psychology. We have other books, The Descent of Man, together with um, The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals, Cross-Fertilisation of Self, Plants and Vegetable Kingdom. Final book, Earthworms. <laughs> we always return to earthworms here. <laughs> he came here for peace, seclusion. He was, he was in poor health. He lived in London, in Upper Islington, for a while, came here, and at the end of the day, he just wanted peace and quiet to be left alone in this room to write his publications. His day, because of poor health, was regimented to a very strict timetable. But he would walk, he would come down to breakfast, and he would write in this room. He would rest in the afternoons. He would play backgammon in the evenings, listen to music, write correspondence, uh, and then he'd be back in the room again in here writing his books. It's an inspirational place. Again, I suppose, an environment which helped inspire his work. It was, yes. He had the time. He was a gentleman scientist. He, he recognised that, the luxury of the fact that he, he had an income independent of everything. He didn't have to work at a university, so consequently he had time to stay here and think and reflect on what he saw and digest everything he was looking at. With time, he would spend years... Um, monitoring something or looking at something before he decided to publish about it. But this is what happens, isn't it? Ideas develop over time yeah. Yeah. and so do species. Yeah. The house was one big laboratory at times, but the garden even more. The garden is so important to what he was thinking, what he was developing. Well, I've found my way outside into the walled garden where a sky-blue lean-to greenhouse is situated. It's got whitewashed stone walls and benches filled with an array of plants, which I can see through the windows here. And Darwin used these plants as material for his many observations and experiments here at Downhouse. And I'm about to meet senior gardener Christina Slivova. Knocking on the window. Hello, do you come in? Well, it's very humid in uh, bay number two, isn't it? Absolutely. This is the tropical section where we grow bromeliads, orchids, nepenthes and plants that come from the tropical origin. So we need to keep them nice and warm in a humid environment because those are the original conditions they live in. What's the temperature in here? Well, the minimum is 20 degrees. That's pretty much what we're trying to keep it at all year round. Now looking around, we are surrounded by plants, lots of them tropical looking, plenty of green, lots of big leaves and sprouts coming out in all different directions. This space must have been really important to Darwin and his theories on the evolution of species. How important was it? It was hugely important, especially for Darwin's botanical research. 
it afforded him the opportunity to study plant adaptations, adaptations which then would allow these plants the best chance of survival in their given environment. And that's what evolution of species by natural selection is all about, after all. But interestingly enough, Darwin didn't build majority of the glass house until after the origin. It was after 1859 he started using more and more plants for a variety of botanical research, observations of plants. And back then he had only his cold greenhouse, so he couldn't provide the right conditions for all these tropical plants. He found himself uh, needing to borrow the glass house and plants from his neighbor and friend. Uh, or he even tried to grow them in a small glass plant case where the heat would be provided by a dish with hot water in it which had to be changed twice a day. That didn't give him enough of the space. Of course, all that was quite inconvenient for him. So finally, only in 1863, he decided he needs to build his own hot house. And what did he grow here? He used vast numbers of plants that he studied for various reasons, various observations. But the major collections probably would be his orchids, his carnivorous plants or insectivorous plants, as he called them back then, and also his climbing plants. But there would be so many more others that he would study so as well. So things like Venus flytraps. And oh, absolutely. What experiments did he do in here? Well, that sounds like a very easy question, and I'll try to be short. Plenty, plenty, plenty. So he was looking at fertilization of orchids, fertilization and pollination. These plants are quite unique in the way they keep and distribute their pollen. Ordinary plants often keep them in anthers and the pollen is freely dispersed. With orchids, the pollen is the smallest pollen in the world and it's tightly packed in two sacs called pollinia. This pollinia gets attached to a head of an insect which comes and flies to drink the nectar from an orchid. Then it gets nicely attached to the head or the end of a proboscis and of course will get transported to another flower which hopefully would be a genetically quite a distinct individual and then it will be deposited onto the stigma and thus cross-pollination will be achieved. And Darwin realized the relationship between insects and flowers is very close relationship. They co-evolve together to aid each other, to aid cross-pollination, which is key stone of evolution. So it sounds as though what you're saying from there, Christina, that there was a lot of observational science mm -hmm. going on. And did he do experiments and observe things out in the gardens as well, in a, in a more sort of natural setting? Yes, I mean, the whole garden was an uh, open, living, working laboratory for him. That was the reason why he acquired the house here in Kent, because he was a very skilled geologist. He could look at the countryside and recognise the importance and the biodiversity of this site. So he used everything he had around him, whether it was in the garden itself, in the meadows or in the woods. Uh, he would often transplant the plants here into the glasshouse or he would bring them to the garden. So, for example, he was very keen on study of earthworms. This is something that interested him from very early age. And very soon after he returned from the voyage of the Beagle, uh, he got inspired by his uncle Josiah Wedgwood. And he studied rate of sinking of cinders and chalk, which he placed on the soil surface only by the action of earthworms, as worms make the tunnels, digest organic matter, reduce it in volume, and then also cast worm casts on the soil surface. They effectively remove the soil from underneath these particles, and the particles are then sinking through the profile of the soil. This is something he studied for, let's say, 26 years. This is one very long-term 
experiment, he often spent a lot of time on these time-consuming, painstaking observations. But then at the end, he realized he needs exact data as well. So he got together with his son, Horace, who was uh, eventually a scientific instrument maker, who created this called Wormograph for him. And they both produced Wormstone, which was a millstone placed on the soil surface with the Wormograph on top. And he was exactly measuring the rate of sinking of this Wormstone. And the recreation of that you can find in the garden. Well, speaking of the gardens, shall we, if you want to go oh, first? So looking out at this um, fantastic Eden, this kitchen garden, which has been more or less faithfully recreated from original yes. documents, some food for thought, obviously. Darwin studied life and the changes of life. But the thing that you sort of notice as you're walking around here is that he lives on, he is immortal as a result of his work. I wonder what he would have made of that. I hope he would be delighted that we try and keep his story alive. This place has turned into a mecca for people from all around the world. They have it on their bucket list and they are so happy when they arrive here. So it's not just any garden, it's not just some plants we grow for because they're pretty. Every corner of this garden hides an incredible story of a man which changed the world. And, and a house as well. And house as well, absolutely. But I'm biased, obviously, as a gardener. <laughs> so it's an absolute privilege to be here. And I hope he would be happy that, I think he went through a lot of grief, stress, and pressure throughout his life, even from his own wife, as even though she supported him all through and through, they disagreed on the fundamental question existence of the creator so it must have been really hard for him so i hope he would feel kind of vindicated and relieved that all of the hard work actually was worth it and that he would be proud and happy for what we are doing today in some respects i think we can see the fruits of his labor yes around us it lives on i always will he is the founder of evolutionary biology and he will always be cited in textbooks for the years and decades coming You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To learn more about Darwin and the 160th anniversary of the publication of On the Origin of Species, there will be a series of special talks at Down House on Sunday the 24th of November. Next week, we're also in Kent at Henry VIII's Deal Castle. Until then, don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, share, and give us a rating. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hello, this is Josie Lung, here to tell you about Speaking with Shadows, a podcast series from English Heritage, presented by me. With the help of researchers and local community members, I'll bring you six stories from history that we should all be talking about. Subscribe to Speaking with Shadows, the podcast that listens to the people that history forgot, and get every episode delivered to your podcast feed for free. I can't wait for you to hear this show.